Hello, I'm Ethan Anthony, and welcome to Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. On March 22, 2021, Columbia University Press released the book At Home and Abroad, The Politics of American Religion. Edited by Elizabeth Shackman Hurd and Winifred Fowler Sullivan, this collection of 15 essays explores the ways religion connects with law and politics on topics ranging from religion in Hawaii to the culture of yoga. With reviews describing the book as a profound and inspiring volume that turns American religion inside out, At Home and Abroad is an engaging collection that is incredibly relevant today. And it is this relevance that inspired us to dive deeper into the topics of this book. Over the next few months, we'll be exploring and discussing the importance of these chapters to people who are most knowledgeable of the subject, the authors themselves. Our co-hosts, Ira Bedzo, the director of the Miriam Institute Project in International Ethics and Leadership, and Matthew Cavadon, the Robert Poole Fellow in Law and Religion, will be analyzing the work of our guest author and asking not only about the text and their inspiration behind the chapter, but also its timeliness today. In our first episode, Matt and Ira speak with Sarah Moff, author and assistant professor of religious studies in the Bourne's Jewish Studies program at Indiana University. Her essay, Homemaking in Palestine, Jesse Samter, Religion and Relation, explores poet and Zionist Jesse Samter through the lenses of home and abroad. The three of them discuss the history of Samter, the role of Zionism and Judaism on her identity, and the power of biographies for social change. All this and more on today's episode of Interactions. Well, first off, Sarah, we uh, we want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. We really uh, enjoyed your chapter and looking forward to talking about it in depth. Um, but before we start, would you would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you're doing? So I'm Sarah Imhoff. I teach at Indiana University Bloomington. Um, I'm the J. and Jeannie Schottenstein Chair in Jewish Studies, and my tenure home is Religious Studies. So most of my work, as this chapter is a good example, speaks to both Religious Studies and Jewish Studies audiences. Well, no, that's great. Let's let's get right into this. Um, we're, we've been champing at the bit to uh, talk to you about uh, Jesse Semter and um I guess the first question we wanted to ask you, um, just to set some of the context and maybe some of the, the background, is if you could just tell us in particular why you, you chose Jesse Samter as a way to analyze concepts of home and abroad, you know, just as well as some of the inter- intersecting lenses that you bring up in terms of individual, the individual and the community when thinking about religion. Yeah. So I think Jesse Samter is both really distinctive and indicative of broader trends and ideas in religion, both in the U.S. and in Palestine as she moves there. More, I think, the U.S. of her time. Um, So just to give you a little taste of what this looks like, she was born into an ethical culture family, then came to Zionism. Through Zionism, she came to Judaism. But throughout her life, she was really fascinated by religious ideas in general. She read Christian works. She also read the Vedas. She loved Emerson. Later in her life, she translated some of the works of Jiddu Krishnamurti into Hebrew. So 
she was almost omnivorous when it came to religious ideas. Uh, And so I really liked the idea of having a smart and reflective person to show us that most people's religious ideas are drawn from not just inside one tradition, not just one place, not just inside the boundaries of some box called Judaism or Episcopalianism or Hinduism. I mean, not that Hinduism is even a compelling box by itself. It's like many boxes, right? Yeah, no, we will talk definitely about about uh, her influences and then how her influences there then influenced others through her writings. Uh, but just even a, a quick question. Uh, we noticed that you also wrote a book on Jesse Semter. Um, did this chapter come out of some of the research from that book? Or like, how does your, your biography and analysis of Jesse Semter uh, on its own accord speak to the ways you were started to think about home and abroad more generally? Yeah, so I hadn't been thinking in terms of home and abroad when I was writing the biography, but being part of this research group that was thinking about the categories of home and abroad really compelled me to use her to think about them, in part because I thought that you could get a hold of some things through her reflections, through her writings, that you couldn't necessarily get a hold of by looking at organizations or political developments. Um, So for example, I think affect is a really important piece of what makes something feel like home for a person or for a community. And that was something I could get at through Sampter that was harder for me to look at um, through bigger questions. I also thought that she presented a great example of how those categories are a bit messy. You might say, well, the U.S. was her home because she was born there and her sister and her sister's family were still there and she moved to Palestine and that was her adopted home or something like that. But she, in her own words, says that she's still searching for a feeling of at-homeness when she's living in the U.S. and she's hoping to find that at-homeness in Palestine. So, then which one is at home and which one is abroad? And she has complicated feelings about both places in terms of how she fits in, how the Jewish people might fit in, and therefore what might count as home. So I really liked that you could see the complications of saying one thing is home and other things are abroad by looking at her own reflections. And I think that those other complications are reflected in many of the other articles in the At Home and Abroad series. Uh, but it was it was neat for me to be able to look through her to see some of that complexity. Speaking of complicating categories, we often think about spirituality as an intentionally individual sort of a practice. And indeed, a lot of the book talks about how an individualized, privatized spirituality is the American default. It seems like a lot of Ms. Sampter's background and the ethical culture movement and things like that are very much focused on individual spirituality. We usually see religion as being on the opposite end of the pole, a very collective, public, power structures sort of phenomenon. I want to hear your thoughts about how Ms. Sampter carries both of those forward and participates in a national and cultural and social movement that has religious undertones to it in many ways, 
and yet how she's also carrying forward a privatized spirituality throughout the course of that. I just want to hear more of your thoughts about that complication from her life as well. Yeah, that's a great point. When she becomes a Zionist, Zionism is not necessarily directed at forming a Jewish state. The thing that Zionists have in common is they think of Jews as a people, or in the terms of the time, a nation, but they don't mean a nation state. They mean a nation as in a people. Um, And one of the interesting things about that is that each one of these people can nevertheless have their own ideas. We might even say their own religious ideas. So she's happy to be part of a Zionism that includes atheists and Orthodox Jews and people like her who are religious but aren't quite the, uh, don't quite fit into one of the denominations of Judaism in the US, for example. Um, So I do think that there's something that works well for allowing space um, for people to have a diverse set of ideas within the Zionist framework that she's participating in, in that it is very much about the collective, but what makes the collective is not a shared set of ideas. So people can have a different set of ideas, I mean, apart from the idea of Jewish peoplehood, um, which is Mordecai Kaplan, her friend's term. So it's not super popular at the time, but I think it's useful to describe what she thinks she's up to and many Zionists do too. So yeah, there's this shared sense of um, Jews as a people, and that's a very kind of corporate, um, I don't mean corporation, I mean like embodied kind of corporate uh, sense, sense of um, sense of who they are together. But then also uh, the idea that there's plenty of space for people to have individual thoughts and even, I mean, in your word, spirituality, even kind of pursue individual sorts of spirituality without departing from um, a Zionist group. Salal Assad said that we need to rethink civic religion and stop focusing so much on beliefs and focus more on rituals and institutions, things like that. As a follow-up, how does that tension that you're talking about affect how we think about civil religion? That's a fascinating question. Um, I think that if we were asking questions about civil religion in the US, at the time, we would ask very different questions than we would be asking about Palestine at the time. Um, In that Palestine was not a state, it was part of the British mandate when Samter went there. And so public religion is contested and frankly kind of weird because the British default is Christian. The people who live in Palestine are Muslim or Jewish, um, but there are some Christians and the Arab Christians in Palestine are not recognized carefully by the British. Um, So I think if we're asking about, say, public institutions, Palestine is Um, even if it would be tempting to default to like, oh, we can describe civil religion, we would end up with a very dense map of things that were being done in public. Um, And here I am thinking rituals and things like that. So I I think my answer to this question is um, 
yes, it's very important to attend to these things. And it, what it looks like to attend to them will be different in the US than in Palestine because of their relationships to things like empire and being or not being a nation state. I want to go back to the way you described um, Zionism at the time of Jesse Samter's uh, life. I, I think it um, was really interesting in how you were able to balance the tension between collective and individual. Uh, and it, it also spoke to me, at least methodologically, in terms of how you look at different lenses of analysis, like looking at the lens of the individual's life versus the community's life uh, and so forth. And one of the things that you you say in the chapter, which you know, you know, you try to say, we have to be very careful in terms of looking at an individual as a microcosm to the collective, um, or thinking that if you look at a collective that speaks to a homogenous group, right? Which speaks to your description of Zionism, but it also creates a bit of a challenge in terms of how the example of Jesse Samter speaks to anyone but Jesse Samter. So how does the example of Jesse Samter speak to these bigger questions that you're looking at in terms of home and abroad or even religious identity or, or, or Zionism at that time? Yeah. When I introduced her, I said in the beginning that she's quite distinctive. Um, most U.S. Jews at her time, so the early 20th century, were not Zionists. I think the last number that I saw was there were 3,800 Jews who paid their shekel, which was a contribution to the Zionist organization in the year 1900. That's really tiny. Um, it's more than that, but it's not six figures by 1920. So in that way, she's distinctive. In another way, um, she's even more distinctive in that she's not an immigrant. She's um, a, an acculturated Jew. She grows up speaking English. Um, and she's more well-to-do than most of the people who were the major players in U.S. Zionism. Um, but I do think that her life is indicative of a larger set of norms. And sometimes it's that we can see those norms because she's the one pushing against them. Um, so I talk about this in the book. It doesn't really come up here very much, but she had polio as a child and she pushes against norms of Zionism, both US-based Zionism and Zionism in Palestine by demonstrating that a person who is not able-bodied, a person who cannot work in the field, um, can and should be a part of the building, the upbuilding of Jewish life in Palestine. Um, and so in that way, we actually, she, she functions as a refraction of the shared ideas by saying, oh, that shared idea is not what I want to see in the world. Um, I think another thing that she teaches us more broadly. And here, I think it's uh, rather than saying she shows us by means of difference, she shows us by means of similarity is the idea that homeness and abroadness does have to do with affect, with feelings. It's tempting to imagine that when there is a wave of immigration. We talk about factors like economics. We talk about factors like, you know, networks. Do you have family there, et cetera? But we should also talk about affect. Um, this matters. It matters how you feel when you live someplace. Does it feel like home? And of course, a whole bunch of things go into does it feel like home? Some of those are economics and family, right? Do you have enough money to make yourself feel comfortable? Do you have connections that make you feel 
at home there. Um, but I do think that she's quite reflective about those affective responses that she has both to living in the U.S. and to living in Palestine that can cue us in to ask those questions about other folks who are maybe less explicitly reflective about it. Do you think that her affect, her influences, I mean, what influenced her, um, her background speaks to uh, contemporary American Zionists or American Jews that move to Israel today, or even people who move from one country to another and find a new home? Um, like how big is her um, lesson for today's readers? I would say that methodologically, it's a big lesson. And methodologically, the lesson is we should ask about affect in each of these individual cases. I think that her particular affect is slightly more unique, to, not slightly more unique, that's silly, um, but, but is more specific to her. Um, not least because when many American Jews move to Israel now, they think of Israel as a kind of second home state. They think of it as a place that already has a close relationship with the United States. Um, when Samter moved to Palestine, most American Jews thought that it maybe could be a safe haven for Jews from elsewhere, but they were not interested in going. So I think that, um, right, so there was a, she was very excited about it, but there was a little bit of consternation. So I think her affective responses to moving to Palestine would be quite different than someone today who is Jewish moving from the U.S. to the state of Israel. But I do think that she can clue us in into what kinds of questions we should ask. When I read your chapter, and I got to the part where Ms. Samter observed that both Arabs and observant Jews needed to drop their sense of romantic nationalism and just learn to get along in a new nation, I attributed that to a more liberal, secularist spirituality that she had grown up with. But what you're saying about polio and about alternative ways of framing who belongs in the new nation and in the new state, and when I hear what you're saying about affect being important to her, do you think it's just that she had a different affect than did a lot of the nationalists? Or is it that there is some reflection of the intellectual context that she came from? Or is it both? Because she's an unconventional Zionist in a lot of ways. And I want to hear more about that in light of where our conversations go on this afternoon. Yeah, I think there's certainly an intellectual component to that. Um, that sense that Jews and Arabs are brothers is a word that she uses. Um, that's informed by her sense of history it's informed by her sense of ethics. Um, it's, I think, also informed by her having grown up in the U.S. where she imagined that people of different religions did live side by side peacefully and productively. I also think that, and this is speculation, right? I can, I can trace her intellectual ideas because she wrote so many of them down. But just speculating, I would say, I think because in many ways she was an outsider to the Zionist movement, she may have been more attuned to other people who didn't fit. So for example, she 
uh, was a champion of educating children from Yemen who were Jews, and she wanted to see them included as part of the Zionist movement. They weren't really included by Ashkenazi Jews who would just kind of shun them from kindergartens and things like that. Um, I don't think that it would be too simple to say, oh, that's because she has polio when she was a kid, and therefore she's attuned to all other outsiders, right? That's entirely too simple. But I do think that she was more attentive to what boundaries might be drawn, in part because she's very aware that Zionism is up for grabs or it's multiple. There are lots of different voices. It's not at all clear there's even going to be a state. And as you can tell from the chapter, she if there's going to be a state, she wants it to be a binational state. She says it shouldn't be a Jewish state. That would be kind of racial and backwards. But she's really committed to a Jewish society that works alongside and with others around it. Um, so I think it's a complicated question to pinpoint exactly where the impetus came from for her to be more inclusive of Arabs than many of her Zionist peers, which is not to say fully inclusive. But I do think that we would want to look both to her intellectual past and her own personal experiences. What was the relationship between Semter's religious ideas or religious thinking and her political ideas or political thinking? And, and I asked that also in relation to her friendship with Mordecai Kaplan. Like if she saw Judaism as a civilization, at, that, at what point does her religion and politics uh, become merged? Yes. Hard to know. I, I mean, she doesn't say things like, this is my religion and this is my politics. And I think for her... They're intertwined, maybe even from before she becomes a Zionist. She, her religious ideas are always ideas that relate to the world. So before she becomes a Zionist, she writes a couple of books. Some of them are about the, um, they're, so they're kind of poetic. One of them is uh, in many ways about the individual as integrated with the natural world and God also being integrated with the individual and the natural world. And that has political implications for her from the start about who should be included and how you treat other people and what kind of experiences the human might want to have in the world. Um, and then after she's a Zionist, she interestingly comes to Judaism through Zionism and not the other way around. Um, but after she becomes a Zionist, it's clear that Judaism is her way of, or one of her ways of plugging into a feeling of connection with Jewish people. Um, so I think they're hard to separate right from the beginning, the, the, her sense of, of religion and politics. There are certainly political moves that she makes that we can say it's not explicitly religious. For example, she's a pacifist. She says... The United States is making a mistake in entering into the First World War. Um, and she does not explicitly tie that to religiosity. But I think we could see it fit in with um, some of her more religious thought, too. So yeah, I guess there are moments when we can say that seems more, that political move seems more politically linked or that one seems less. But 
I would be hard pressed to say there were times that we could separate them fully at all. Because her influences are, are so diverse. I mean, you might even think that she's syncretic in how she she puts her philosophy out or her, her thinking out. Um, would you define her or describe her as a as a Jewish thinker? And however you answer that question, uh, please define the term. Yes. So I would say yes, she's a Jewish thinker. Many of her sources are Jewish when she's presenting her philosophical thought. She makes here's the here's the biggest reason um she thinks that a sense of belonging is really important for all people she says i'm a nationalist by which she means i'm a zionist this is my brand of nationalism and i'm an internationalist by which she means that the best version of the world is where each person belongs to a group a nation in her terms and each one of those brings its own values together, and then the world is stronger. Um, So she identifies herself as Jewish. It's also sensible to identify her as a Jewish thinker because many of the people with whom she's in conversation are Jewish. Um, Many of them, I don't know, I think Henrietta Zold also counts as a Jewish thinker, even though she usually gets described as more of a doer. Uh, But she herself has some pretty important things to say. She stops writing other than things like letters and Hadassah-related things in her later years. But in her earlier years, she is too. Um, Samter obviously has a relationship with Mordecai Kaplan that continues throughout to the end of her life. Um, so yes, she's a Jewish thinker. The canon of Jewish thought is, if you ask me, kind of still embarrassingly closed and small. Um, and I... Think we learn a lot from adding people to it. So I just told you we should add both Jesse Samter and Henrietta Sold to our list of Jewish thinkers. Um, so some of that I'm is changing, dispositional. <laughs> I'm, I'm changing my syllabi. Just so you know. <laughs> thank you for the suggestions. I want to hear more about doing as a form of thinking. You mention Ms. Samter's gardens. You include a diagram of her house in the chapter. You talk about her resonance with her earlier thoughts about communing with nature as she's actually planting fruits and growing the land in a very literal sense. So understanding that perhaps Ms. Soul is a better example of a doer from whom thinking can be derived. Tell me about Ms. Samter's doing and how that fits into your broader picture here of what her project was all about. Yes, I think that she's in fact, a great example, because on the face of it, she seems like she can't do the typical kind of doing that goes along with being a Zionist. So that typical kind of doing is pretty literally upbuilding the land, building structures, uh, working in agriculture, etc. Building infrastructure too. And those things are not available to her because of the body that she has. She does, however, do this gardening and what I describe as homemaking, right? She's making a home um, for her and also kind of an open home. Later in her life, she and Leah Berlin join a kibbutz together. And part of her terms, because she's bringing a fair amount of money with her, include that there's going to be a vegetarian rest home. So there she's making a home for workers who are ill or injured or or need a rest in some way. Um, So I think that her doing is 
I mean, in a sense, a form of thinking, right? It's it's making claims about what it means to create a new society or a good society. Um, it's making claims about how to best relate to the land. It's interesting to me that she is never thinks of a kind of dominate the land, right? That's kind of a I would say a masculine paradigm, but we can see lots of that dominate the land as a way of owning it, right? Think about like manifest destiny, think about imperialism. Um, she's not in the business of doing that relationship with the land. When she does relationship with the land, she does cultivate it. She does grow things in it. She does learn about it so she can figure out what grows well in it. Um, so I see those things as making claims about what a good or appropriate relationship with the land would be. And that's a central, that's a central thing in Zionist thought is what's the relationship with the land. Speaking of relationships and growth, uh, we don't see anywhere in the chapter and maybe it is in the biography, anything about family relationships, romantic relationships. Uh, Here is a, move again about populating a new place. And we have a woman who doesn't have kids. We have a woman whose main companion is another woman until the kibbutz years. Um, Tell me about that, about that side of affect, relationship, nation building, uh, what it means in the context of her interpersonal relationships and how she chose to prioritize her time and commit her life. Yeah. There is a fair amount of this in the biography where I call her queer. Um, And that is not a claim about what kind of sex she had with whom. Uh, I don't know if she and Leah Berlin ever had sex. And frankly, I think that's like the least interesting question. What's really interesting to me is they did make a life together. Um, She also doesn't make much of an appearance here, but Samter adopted an orphan from Yemen Um, named Tamar. And she raised Tamar and Leah Berlin helped raise Tamar also. So here, Samter is doing something that is very unlike the gender norms and the reproductive norms of Zionism, which is pretty heterosexual and invested in the reproduction of the Jewish people for the future. Um, So she sort of does those things, but in a very different way, right? Um, She creates a a family network or a kinship network that is not about blood, although she does have a good relationship with her sister who continues to live in the U.S. Um, Part of the reason I know so much about her personal life is because she wrote her sister a long letter basically every week that she lived in Palestine. Um, So that's quite a few letters and they're pretty long. So I think she's doing her Zionism quite differently. She has interpersonal relationships. Um, She loves living on the kibbutz, but in a way she's not fully of the kibbutz because she can't do the manual labor that they can. And when she and Leah go to live on the kibbutz, they're older than almost everyone else by some years. Um, So they're part of it, but not 100% part of it, Um, not fully integrated into everyday life at the kibbutz, even though she is 
fully invested in the ideology and 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 shapes the ideology there on the kibbutz too. I gotta ask, how did you find Jesse Samter? Like, where where did your interest in her um, to you know not only write this chapter but write a biography continually? use examples from her life for, for some of your other writings and teachings. Like, where did How did this relationship begin? My first book was about men. It was about masculinity and American Judaism. And there's a chapter on Zionism. And so I had oodles of examples of what American men were saying about Zionism, especially with respect to masculinity. And I just didn't have very many examples of what American women were saying about Zionism. Um, and I had seen Samter's name come up a couple of times, but I figured I would see what there was in the archives because I could see there were there were some of her papers in the Central Zionist Archives in Jerusalem, and I was going to look at some other stuff. So I pulled some papers for her and was captivated. She is super interesting. They had a bunch of stuff. It turns out they even had more stuff than they had listed in the catalog. Um, and in the beginning, I was like, wow, she's so interesting. I'm going to write an article about her. Uh, she's not really right for this masculinity book. She didn't have that much to say um, about uh, little bits here and there, but nothing super quotable or um, really amazing for the first book. But I was, yeah, I was hooked. She was so fascinating. I mean, and for me, one of the most important hooks was what does it mean for this person who was disabled and lived a queer life to embrace Zionism? Um, that seems like her political ideals and her embodied life just didn't match up. And yet it wasn't that she was unreflective about this. She was quite reflective about it. So that's the hook. No, I get it. Believe me. Um, even just hearing not only how you speak about it, but uh, uh, the chapter and, and some of the other stuff I read about what you wrote on her, I understand why she would be someone that you would continually learn lessons from. Are we just doing history wrong? I mean, a lot of our questions assume that if you want history, you find neat microcosms of broader social movements and you tell them as a way of telling a broader story. Here we've got somebody who in relief, tells a very interesting story or an alternative story. What should we be doing when we're thinking about historiography in light of your research? And have you seen other examples of folks doing what you did with Ms. Sapter, which is turning things on their head, using personal stories, not to tell bigger stories, but just to say that, look, individual stories are a really important part of history as well. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm curious for your reflections on the study of history as a result of this project. That's a great question. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. I don't think we're doing history wrong, but I would say that this is an additional way we should be doing more of. I was talking to Susanna Heschel when I was writing this, and she said to me, one thing I love about it is you not only ask what her life meant to us, but you ask what her life meant to her. And I think this grew out of Heschel's sense that many people had written about her father, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and not asked what his life meant to him, but rather just in a kind of instrumental way, what his life meant to others. Um, and I took that really seriously. And I think 
we need both those questions when we're doing history, which is not to say that every project must do both those questions, but that they are both really meaningful if we want something out of history that's other than a list of past facts, right? Even if all we want is a meaningful narrative that's a story we can tell ourselves about the past, I think we still want both those questions. Well, Sarah, we very, I can't speak for Matt. I really appreciated this conversation. Matt, you, you can say that how much you appreciate it yourself. Um, uh, I, I think that you gave us a lot more in this conversation than we could have gotten just reading the chapter alone. And um, I know that I'm now going to go back and, and look again at the, the biography and some of the other writings of, of Jesse Samter to see what not only I can learn from her, but what she was able to take from her own experiences and articulate that experience through her writings. One of the things I really appreciated was, especially in the study of law, of history, of social studies, we do tend to focus on bigger phenomena and not focus on the way that those bigger phenomena get translated into the lives of individuals rather than just that individuals are building blocks for some bigger thing. And I think that this is a very important counterbalance to that. And so I really appreciated you taking the approach that you did and putting it into the places that you did, where this is not just in a couple of biographical studies, but that it is sitting in the middle of a volume about at home and abroad. I appreciate that you are taking those individual embodiments and particularities and upfronting them in the middle of those kinds of settings and conversations. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've asked such great questions. And, you know, you'd think after I'd written a whole book and some other things about Samter that I would have thought everything there was to think, but surely not. I'm going to take some of your questions home with me. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Sarah and Ma, for joining us in this discussion. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to stay updated on new and upcoming episodes, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. The Interactions podcast is distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and Canopy Forum and produced by Ethan Anthony.